Chapter Four of the Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, the story of the bald-headed man. We followed the Indian down a sordid and common passage, ill-lit and worse furnished, until he came to a door upon the right, which he threw open. A blaze of yellow light streamed out upon us and in the centre of the glare there stood a small man with a very high head, a bristle of red hair all round the fringe of it, and a bald shining scalp which shot out from among it like a mountain peak from fir-trees. He writhed his hands together as he stood, and his features were in a perpetual jerk, now smiling, now scowling, but never for an instant in repose. Nature had given him a pendulous lip, and a too visible line of yellow and irregular teeth which he strove feebly to conceal by constantly passing his hand over the lower part of his face. In spite of his obtrusive baldness, he gave the impression of youth. In point of fact, he had just turned his thirtieth year. "'Your servant, Miss Morstan,' he kept repeating in a thin, high voice. "'Your servant, gentlemen. Pray step into my little sanctum.' A small place, miss, but furnished to my own liking. An oasis of art in the howling desert of South London. We were all astonished by the appearance of the apartment into which he invited us. In that sorry house it looked as out of place as a diamond of the first water in a setting of brass. The richest and glossiest of curtains and tapestries draped the walls, looped back here and there to expose some richly mounted painting or oriental vase. The carpet was of amber and black, so soft and so thick that the foot sank pleasantly into it, as into a bed of moss. Two great tiger-skins thrown athwart it increased the suggestion of eastern luxury, as did a huge hookah which stood upon a mat in the corner. A lamp in the fashion of a silver dove was hung from an almost invisible golden wire in the centre of the room. As it burned, it filled the air with a subtle and aromatic odour. "'Mr. Thaddeus Sholto,' said the little man, still jerking and smiling. "'That is my name. You are Miss Morstan, of course. And these gentlemen?' "'This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and this is Dr. Watson.' "'Ah, Doctor, hey?' cried he, much excited. "'Have you your stethoscope? Might I ask you? Would you have the kindness? I have grave doubts as to my mitral valve. If you would be so very good. The aortic I may rely upon, but I should value your opinion upon the mitral.' I listened to his heart as requested, but was unable to find anything amiss, save indeed that he was in an ecstasy of fear, for he shivered from head to foot. "'It appears to be normal,' I said. You have no cause for uneasiness. "'You will excuse my anxiety, Miss Morstan,' he remarked airily. "'I am a great sufferer, and I have long had suspicions as to that valve. I am delighted to hear that they are unwarranted. Had your father, Miss Morstan, refrained from throwing a strain upon his heart, he might have been alive now.' I could have struck the man across the face. So hot was I at this callous and off-hand reference to so delicate a matter. Miss Morstan sat down, and her face grew white to the lips. "'I knew in my heart that he was dead,' said she. "'I can give you every information,' said he. "'And what is more, I can do you justice, and I will too, 
whatever brother bartholomew may say i am so glad to have your friends here not only as an escort to you but also as witnesses to what i am about to do and say the three of us can show a bold front to brother bartholomew but let us have no outsiders no police or officials we can settle everything satisfactorily among ourselves without any interference nothing would annoy brother bartholomew more than any publicity he sat down upon a low settee and blinked at us inquiringly with his weak watery blue eyes for my part said holmes whatever you may choose to say will go no further i nodded to show my agreement that is well that is well said he may i offer you a glass of chianti miss morstan or of tokay i keep no other wines shall i open a flask no well then i trust that you have no objection to tobacco smoke to the mild balsamic odour of the eastern tobacco i am a little nervous and i find my hookah an invaluable sedative he applied a taper to the great bowl and the smoke bubbled merrily through the rose-water we sat all three in a semicircle with our heads advanced and our chins upon our hands while the strange jerky little fellow with his high shining head puffed uneasily in the centre when i first determined to make this communication to you said he i might have given you my address but i feared that you might disregard my request and bring unpleasant people with you i took the liberty therefore of making an appointment in such a way that my man williams might be able to see you first i have complete confidence in his discretion and he had orders if he were dissatisfied to proceed no further in the matter you will excuse these precautions but i am a man of somewhat retiring and i might even say refined tastes and there is nothing more unesthetic than a policeman i have a natural shrinking from all forms of rough materialism i seldom come in contact with the rough crowd i live as you see with some little atmosphere of elegance around me i may call myself a patron of the arts it is my weakness the landscape is a genuine coro and though a connoisseur might perhaps throw a doubt upon that salvator rosa there cannot be the least question about the bougoreau i am partial to the modern french school you will excuse me mr sholto said miss morstan but i am here at your request to learn something which you desire to tell me it is very late and i should desire the interview to be as short as possible at the best it must take some time he answered for we shall certainly have to go to norwood and see brother bartholomew we shall all go and try if we can get the better of brother bartholomew he is very angry with me for taking the course which has seemed right to me i had quite high words with him last night you cannot imagine what a terrible fellow he is when he's angry if we're to go to norwood it would perhaps be as well to start at once i ventured to remark he laughed until his ears were quite red that would hardly do he cried i don't know what he would say if i brought you in that sudden way no i must prepare you by showing you how we all stand to each other in the first place i must tell you that there are several points in the story of which i am myself ignorant i can only lay the facts before you as far as i know them myself my father was as you may have guessed major john sholto once of the indian army 
he retired some eleven years ago and came to live at pondicherry lodge in upper norwood he had prospered in india and brought back with him a considerable sum of money a large collection of valuable curiosities and a staff of native servants with these advantages he bought himself a house and lived in great luxury my twin brother bartholomew and i were the only children i very well remember the sensation which was caused by the disappearance of captain morstan we read the details in the papers and knowing that he had been a friend of our father's we discussed the case freely in his presence he used to join in our speculations as to what could have happened never for an instant did we suspect that he had the whole secret hidden in his own breast that of all men he alone knew the fate of arthur morstan we did know however that some mystery some positive danger overhung our father he was very fearful of going out alone and he always employed two prize fighters to act as porters at pondicherry lodge williams who drove you tonight was one of them he was once lightweight champion of england our father would never tell us what it was he feared but he had a most marked aversion to men with wooden legs on one occasion he actually fired his revolver at a wooden-legged man who proved to be a harmless tradesman canvassing for orders we had to pay a large sum to hush the matter up my brother and i used to think this is a mere whim of my father's but events have since led us to change our opinion early in eighteen eighty two my father received a letter from india which was a great shock to him he nearly fainted at the breakfast table when he opened it and from that day he sickened to his death what was in the letter we could never discover but i could see as he held it that it was short and written in a scrawling hand he had suffered for years from an enlarged spleen but he now became rapidly worse and towards the end of april we were informed that he was beyond all hope and that he wished to make a last communication to us when we entered his room he was propped up with pillows and breathing heavily he besought us to lock the door and to come upon either side of the bed then grasping our hands he made a remarkable statement to us in a voice which was broken as much by emotion as by pain i shall try and give it to you in his own very words i have only one thing he said which weighs upon my mind at this supreme moment it is my treatment of poor morstan's orphan the cursed greed which has been my besetting sin through life has withheld from her the treasure half at least of which should have been hers and yet i have made no use of it myself so blind and foolish a thing is avarice the mere feeling of possession has been so dear to me that i could not bear to share it with another see that chaplet dipped with pearls beside the quinine bottle even that i could not bear to part with although i had got it out with the design of sending it to her you my sons will give her a fair share of the agra treasure but send her nothing not even the chaplet until i am gone after all men have been as bad as this and have recovered i will tell you how morstan died he continued he had suffered for years from a weak heart but he concealed it from everyone i alone knew it 
when in india he and i through a remarkable chain of circumstances came into possession of a considerable treasure i brought it over to england and on the night of morstan's arrival he came straight over here to claim his share he walked over from the station and was admitted by my faithful lal chowdar who is now dead morstan and i had a difference of opinion as to the division of the treasure and we came to heated words morstan had sprung out of his chair in a paroxysm of anger when he suddenly pressed his hand to his side his face turned a dusky hue and he fell backwards cutting his head against the corner of the treasure chest when i stooped over him i found to my horror that he was dead for a long time i sat half distracted wondering what i should do my first impulse was of course to call for assistance but i could not but recognize that there was every chance that i would be accused of his murder his death at the moment of a quarrel and the gash in his head would be black against me again an official inquiry could not be made without bringing out some facts about the treasure which i was particularly anxious to keep secret he had told me that no soul upon earth knew where he had gone there seemed to be no necessity why any soul ever should know i was still pondering over the matter when looking up i saw my servant lal chowdar in the doorway he stole in and bolted the door behind him do not fear sahib he said no one need know that you have killed him let us hide him from away and who is the wiser i did not kill him said i lal chowdar shook his head and smiled i heard it all sahib said he i heard you quarrel and i heard the blow but my lips are sealed all are asleep in the house let us put him away together that was enough to decide me if my own servant could not believe my innocence how could i hope to make it good before twelve foolish tradesmen in a jury box lal chowdar and i disposed of the body that night and within a few days the london papers were full of mysterious disappearance of captain morstan you will see from what i say that i can hardly be blamed in the matter my fault lies in the fact that we concealed not only the body but also the treasure and that i have clung to morstan's share as well as to my own i wish you therefore to make restitution put your ears down to my mouth the treasure is hidden in at this instant a horrible change came over his expression his eyes stared wildly his jaw dropped and he yelled in a voice which i can never forget keep him out for christ's sake keep him out we both stared round at the window behind us upon which his gaze was fixed a face was looking in at us out of the darkness we could see the whitening of the nose where it was pressed against the glass it was a bearded hairy face with wild cruel eyes and an expression of concentrated malevolence my brother and i rushed towards the window but the man was gone when we returned to my father his head had dropped and his pulse had ceased to beat we searched the garden that night but found no sign of the intruder save that just under the window a single footmark was visible in the flower bed but for that one trace 
we might have thought that our imaginations had conjured up that wild, fierce face. We soon, however, had another and a more striking proof that there were secret agencies at work all round us. The window of my father's room was found open in the morning. His cupboards and boxes had been rifled, and upon his chest was fixed a torn piece of paper with the words, The Sign of the Four, scrawled across it. What the phrase meant, or who our secret visitor may have been, we never knew. As far as we can judge, none of my father's property had been actually stolen, though everything had been turned out. My brother and I naturally associated this peculiar incident with the fear which haunted my father during his life, but it is still a complete mystery to us. The little man stopped to relight his hookah, and puff thoughtfully for a few moments. We had all sat absorbed, listening to his extraordinary narrative. At the short account of her father's death, Miss Morstan had turned deadly white, and for a moment I feared that she was about to faint. She rallied, however, on drinking a glass of water which I quietly poured out for her from a Venetian carafe upon the side-table. Sherlock Holmes leaned back in his chair with an abstracted expression, and the lids drawn low over his glittering eyes. As I glanced at him, I could not but think how on that very day he had complained bitterly of the commonplaceness of life. Here at least was a problem which would tax his sagacity to the utmost. Mr. Thaddeus Sholto looked from one to the other of us with an obvious pride at the effect which his story had produced, and then continued between the puffs of his overgrown pipe. "'My brother and I,' said he, "'were, as you may imagine, much excited as to the treasure which my father had spoken of. For weeks and for months we dug and delved in every part of the garden without discovering its whereabouts. It was maddening to think that the hiding-place was on his very lips at the moment that he died. We could judge the splendour of his missing riches by the chaplet which he had taken out. Over this chaplet my brother Bartholomew and I had some little discussion. The pearls were evidently of great value, and he was averse to part with them, for between friends my brother was himself a little inclined to my father's fault. He thought, too, that if we parted with the chaplet it might give rise to gossip and finally bring us into trouble. It was all that I could do to persuade him to let me find out Miss Morstan's address and send her a detached pearl at fixed intervals, so that at least she might never feel destitute. "'It was a kindly thought,' said our companion earnestly. "'It was extremely good of you.' The little man waved his hand deprecatingly. "'We were your trustees,' he said. "'That was the view which I took of it, though Brother Bartholomew could not altogether see it in that light. We had plenty of money ourselves. I desired no more.' "'Besides, it would have been such bad taste "'to have treated a young lady in so scurvy a fashion. "'Le mauvais goût mène au crime. "'The French have a very neat way of putting these things. "'Our difference of opinion on this subject went so far "'that I thought it best to set up rooms for myself. "'So I left Pondicherry Lodge, "'taking the old Kitmugar and Williams with me. "'Yesterday, however, I learn that an event of extreme importance has occurred. "'The treasure... 
has been discovered i instantly communicated with miss morstan and it only remains for us to drive out to norwood and demand our share i explained my views last night to brother bartholomew so we shall be expected if not welcome visitors mr thaddeus sholto ceased and sat twitching on his luxurious settee we all remained silent with our thoughts upon the new development which the mysterious business had taken holmes was the first to spring to his feet you have done well sir from first to last said he it is possible that we may be able to make you some small return by throwing some light upon that which is still dark to you but as miss morstan remarked just now it is late and we had best put the matter through without delay our new acquaintance very deliberately coiled up the tube of his hookah and produced from behind a curtain a very long befrogged topcoat with astrakhan collar and cuffs this he buttoned tightly up in spite of the extreme closeness of the night and finished his attire by putting on a rabbit-skin cap with hanging lappets which covered the ears so that no part of him was visible save his mobile and peaky face my health is somewhat fragile he remarked as he led the way down the passage i am compelled to be a valetudinarian our cab was awaiting us outside and our program was evidently prearranged for the driver started off at once at a rapid pace thaddeus sholto talked incessantly in a voice which rose high above the rattle of the wheels bartholomew is a clever fellow said he how do you think he found out where the treasure was he had come to the conclusion that it was somewhere indoors so he worked out all the cubic space of the house and made measurements everywhere so that not one inch should be unaccounted for among other things he found that the height of the building was seventy-four feet but on adding together the heights of all the separate rooms and making every allowance for the space between which he ascertained by borings he could not bring the total to more than seventy feet there were four feet unaccounted for these could only be at the top of the building he knocked a hole therefore in the lath and plaster ceiling of the highest room and there sure enough he came upon another little garret above it which had been sealed up and was known to no one in the centre stood the treasure chest resting upon two rafters he lowered it through the hole and there it lies he computes the value of the jewels at not less than a half a million sterling at the mention of this gigantic sum we all stared at one another open-eyed miss morstan could we secure her rights would change from a needy governess to the richest heiress in england surely it was the place of a loyal friend to rejoice at such news yet i am ashamed to say that selfishness took me by the soul and that my heart turned as heavy as lead within me i stammered out some few halting words of congratulation and then sat downcast with my head drooped deaf to the babble of our new acquaintance he was clearly a confirmed hypochondriac and i was dreamily conscious that he was pouring forth interminable trains of symptoms and imploring information as to the composition and action of innumerable quack nostrums some of which he bore about in a leather case in his pocket i trust that he may not remember any of the answers which i gave him that night holmes declares that he overheard me caution him against the great danger of taking more than two drops of castor oil 
while I recommended strychnine in large doses as a sedative. However that may be, I was certainly relieved when our cab pulled up with a jerk, and the coachman sprang down to open the door. "'This, Miss Morstan, is Pondicherry Lodge,' said Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, as he handed her out. End of chapter 4「Chapter Five: The Tragedy of Pondicherry Lodge It was nearly eleven o'clock when we reached this final stage of our night's adventures. We had left the damp fog of the great city behind us, and the night was fairly fine. A warm wind blew from the westward, and heavy clouds moved slowly across the sky with half a moon peeping occasionally through the rifts. It was clear enough to see for some distance, but Thaddeus Sholto took down one of the side lamps from the carriage to give us a better light upon our way. Pondicherry Lodge stood in its own grounds, and was girt round with a very high stone wall topped with broken glass. A single, narrow, iron-clamped door formed the only means of entrance. On this our guide knocked with a peculiar postman-like rat-tat. "'Who is there?' cried a gruff voice from within. "'It is I, McMurdo. You surely know my knock by this time.' There was a grumbling sound and a clanking and jarring of keys. The door swung heavily back, and a short, deep-chested man stood in the opening, with the yellow light of the lantern shining upon his protruded face and twinkling, distrustful eyes. "'That you, Mr. Thaddeus? But who are the others?' i had no orders about them from the master no mcmurdo you surprise me i told my brother last night that i should bring some friends he ain't been out his room to-day mr thaddeus and i have no orders you know very well that i must stick to regulations i can let you in but your friends must just stop where they are this was an unexpected obstacle thaddeus sholto looked about him in a perplexed and helpless manner "'This is too bad of you, McMurdo,' he said. "'If I guarantee them, that is enough for you. "'There is the young lady, too. "'She cannot wait on the public road at this hour.' "'Very sorry, Mr. Thaddeus,' said the porter inexorably. "'Folk may be your friends of yours, and yet no friends of the master's. "'He pays me well to do my duty, and my duty I'll do. "'I don't know none of your friends.' "'Oh, yes, you do, McMurdo.' cried sherlock holmes genially i don't think you can have forgotten me don't you remember the amateur who fought three rounds with you at allison's rooms on the night of your benefit tour years back not mr sherlock holmes roared the prize-fighter god's truth how could i have mistook you if instead of standing there so quiet you just stepped up and given me that cross hit of yours under the jaw i'd have known you without question ah you're one that has wasted your gifts you have you might have aimed high if you'd joined the fancy you see watson if all else fails me i have still one of the scientific professions open to me said holmes laughing our friend won't keep us out in the cold now i am sure in you come sir in you come you and your friends he answered very sorry mr thaddeus but orders are very strict had to be certain of your friends before i let em in 
inside a gravel path wound through desolate grounds to a huge clump of a house square and prosaic all plunged in shadow save where a moonbeam struck one corner and glimmered in a garret window the vast size of the building with its gloom and its deathly silence struck a chill to the heart even thaddeus sholto seemed ill at ease and the lantern quivered and rattled in his hand i cannot understand it he said there must be some mistake i distinctly told bartholomew that we should be here and yet there is no light in his window i do not know what to make of it does he always guard the premises in this way asked holmes yes he has followed my father's custom he was the favorite son you know and i sometimes think that my father may have told him more than he ever told me that is bartholomew's window up there where the moonshine strikes it is quite bright but there is no light from within i think none said holmes but i see the glint of light in that little window beside the door ah that is the housekeeper's room that is where old mrs bernstone sits she can tell us all about it but perhaps you would not mind waiting here for a minute or two for if we all go in together and she has no word of our coming she may be alarmed but hush what is that he held up the lantern and his hand shook until the circles of light flickered and wavered all around us miss morstan seized my wrist and we all stood with thumping hearts straining our ears from the great black house there sounded through the silent night the saddest and most pitiful of sounds the shrill broken whimpering of a frightened woman it is mrs bernstone said sholto she is the only woman in the house wait here i shall be back in a moment he hurried for the door and knocked in his peculiar way we could see a tall old woman admit him and sway with pleasure at the very sight of him oh mr thaddeus sir i'm so glad you've come i am so glad you've come mr thaddeus sir we heard her reiterated rejoicings until the door was closed and her voice died away into a muffled monotone our guide had left us the lantern holmes swung it slowly round and peered keenly at the house and at the great rubbish heaps which cumbered the grounds miss morstan and i stood together and her hand was in mine a wondrous subtle thing is love for here we were two who had never seen each other before that day between whom no word or even look of affection had ever passed and yet now in an hour of trouble our hands instinctively sought for each other i have marvelled at it since but at the time it seemed the most natural thing that i should go out to her so and as she has often told me there was in her also the instinct to turn to me for comfort and protection so we stood hand in hand like two children and there was peace in our hearts for all the dark things that surrounded us what a strange place she said looking round it looks as though all the moles in england have been let loose in it i've seen something of the sort on the side of a hill near ballarat where the prospectors have been at work and from the same cause said holmes these are the traces of the treasure seekers you must remember that they were six years looking for it no wonder that the grounds look like a gravel pit at that moment the door of the house burst open and thaddeus sholto came running out with his hands thrown forward and terror in his eyes 
there is something amiss with bartholomew he cried i am frightened my nerves cannot stand it he was indeed half blubbering with fear and his twitching feeble face peeping out from the great astrakhan collar had the helpless appealing expression of a terrified child come into the house said holmes in his crisp firm way yes do pleaded thaddeus sholto i really do not feel equal to giving directions we all followed him into the housekeeper's room which stood upon the left-hand side of the passage the old woman was pacing up and down with a scared look and restless picking fingers but the sight of miss morstan appeared to have a soothing effect upon her god bless your sweet calm face she cried with an hysterical sob it does me good to see you oh but i have been sorely tried this day our companion patted her thin work-worn hand and murmured some few words of kindly womanly comfort which brought the colour back into the other's bloodless cheeks master has locked himself in and will not answer me she explained all day i've waited to hear from him for he often likes to be alone but an hour ago i feared that something was amiss so i went up and peeped through the keyhole you must go up mr thaddeus you must go up and look for yourself i've seen mr bartholomew sholto in joy and in sorrow for ten long years but i never saw him with such a face on him as that sherlock holmes took the lamp and led the way for thaddeus sholto's teeth were chattering in his head so shaken was he that i had to pass my hand under his arm as we went up the stairs for his knees were trembling under him twice as we ascended holmes whipped his lens out of his pocket and carefully examined marks which appeared to me to be mere shapeless smudges of dust upon the cocoa-nut matting which served as a stair carpet he walked slowly from step to step holding the lamp and shooting keen glances to right and left miss morstan had remained behind with the frightened housekeeper the third flight of stairs ended in a straight passage of some length with a great picture in indian tapestry upon the right of it and three doors upon the left holmes advanced along it in the same slow and methodical way while we kept close at his heels with our long black shadows streaming backwards down the corridor the third door was that which we were seeking holmes knocked without receiving any answer and then tried to turn the handle and force it open it was locked on the inside however and by a broad and powerful bolt as we could see when we set our lamp up against it the key being turned however the hole was not entirely closed sherlock holmes bent down to it and instantly rose again with a sharp intaking of the breath there is something devilish in this watson said he more moved than i had ever before seen him what do you make of it i stooped to the hole and recoiled in horror moonlight was streaming into the room and it was bright with a vague and shifty radiance looking straight at me and suspended as it were in the air for all beneath was in shadow there hung a face the very face of our companion thaddeus there was the same high shining head the same circular bristle of red hair the same bloodless countenance the features were set however in a horrible smile a fixed and unnatural grin which in that still and moonlit room 
was more jarring to the nerves than any scowl or contortion so like was the face to that of our little friend that i looked round at him to make sure that he was indeed with us then i recalled to mind that he had mentioned to us that his brother and he were twins this is terrible i said to holmes what is to be done the door must come down he answered and springing against it he put all his weight upon the lock it creaked and groaned but did not yield together we flung ourselves upon it once more and this time it gave way with a sudden snap and we found ourselves within bartholomew sholto's chamber it appeared to have been fitted up as a chemical laboratory a double line of glass stoppered bottles was drawn up upon the wall opposite the door and a table was littered over with bunsen burners test tubes and retorts in the corners stood carboys of acid in wicker baskets one of these appeared to leak or to have been broken for a stream of dark colored liquid had trickled out from it and the air was heavy with a peculiarly pungent tar-like odor a set of steps stood at one side of the room in the midst of a litter of lath and plaster and above them there was an opening in the ceiling large enough for a man to pass through at the foot of the steps a long coil of rope was thrown carelessly together by the table in a wooden armchair the master of the house was seated all in a heap with his head sunk upon his left shoulder and that ghastly inscrutable smile upon his face he was stiff and cold and had clearly been dead many hours it seemed to me that not only his features but all his limbs were twisted and turned in the most fantastic fashion by his hand upon the table there lay a peculiar instrument a brown close-grained stick with a stone head like a hammer rudely lashed on with coarse twine beside it was a torn sheet of note-paper with some words scrawled upon it holmes glanced at it then handed it to me you see he said with a significant raising of the eyebrows in the light of the lantern i read with a thrill of horror the sign of the four in god's name what does it all mean i asked it means murder said he stooping over the dead man ah i expected it look here he pointed to what looked like a long dark thorn stuck in the skin just above the ear it looks like a thorn said i it is a thorn you may pick it out but be careful for it is poisoned i took it up between my finger and thumb it came away from the skin so readily that hardly any mark was left behind one tiny speck of blood showed where the puncture had been this is all an insoluble mystery to me said i it grows darker instead of clearer on the contrary he answered it clears every instant i only require a few missing links to have an entirely connected case we had almost forgotten our companion's presence since we entered the chamber he was still standing in the doorway the very picture of terror wringing his hands and moaning to himself suddenly however he broke out into a sharp querulous cry the treasure is gone he said they have robbed him of the treasure there is the hole through which we lowered it 
I helped him to do it. I was the last person who saw him. I left him here last night, and I heard him lock the door as I came downstairs. What time was that? It was ten o'clock, and now he is dead, and the police will be called in, and I shall be suspected of having had a hand in it. Oh, yes, I am sure I shall. But you don't think so, gentlemen. Surely you don't think it was I. Is it likely that I would have brought you here if it were I? Oh, dear, oh, dear, I know that I shall go mad. He jerked his arms and stamped his feet in a kind of convulsive frenzy. "'You have no reason for fear, Mr. Sholto,' said Holmes, kindly putting his hand upon his shoulder. "'Take my advice, and drive down to the station to report this matter to the police. Offer to assist them in every way. We shall wait here until your return.' The little man obeyed in a half-stupefied fashion, and we heard him stumbling down the stairs in the dark. End of chapter 5 Chapter Six of the Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six. Sherlock Holmes gives a demonstration. Now, Watson," said Holmes, rubbing his hands, "we have half an hour to ourselves. Let us make good use of it. My case is, as I have told you, almost complete, but we must not err on the side of overconfidence. Simple as the case seems now, there may be something deeper underlying it. Simple, I ejaculated. Surely, said he, with something of the air of a clinical professor expounding to his class. Just sit in the corner there, that your footprints may not complicate matters. Now to work. In the first place, how did these folk come, and how did they go? The door has not been opened since last night how of the window he carried the lamp across to it muttering his observations aloud the while but addressing them to himself rather than to me window is snibbed on the inner side framework is solid no hinges at the side let us open it no water pipe near roof quite out of reach yet a man has mounted by the window it rained a little last night here is the print of a foot in the mould upon the sill and here is a circular muddy mark and here again upon the floor and here again by the table see here watson this is really a very pretty demonstration i looked at the round well-defined muddy discs this is not a footmark said i it is something much more valuable to us it is the impression of a wooden stump you see here on the sill is the boot mark a heavy boot with the broad metal heel and beside it is the mark of the timber toe it is the wooden-legged man quite so but there has been someone else a very able and efficient ally could you scale that wall doctor i looked out of the open window the moon still shone brightly on that angle of the house we were a good sixty feet from the ground and look where i would i could see no foothold nor as much as a crevice in the brickwork it is absolutely impossible i answered without aid it is so but suppose you had a friend up here who lowered you this good stout rope which i see in the corner 
securing one end of it to this great hook in the wall then i think if you were an active man you might swarm up wooden leg and all you would depart of course in the same fashion and your ally would draw up the rope untie it from the hook shut the window snib it on the inside and get away in the way that he originally came as a minor point it may be noted he continued fingering the rope that our wooden-legged friend though a fair climber was not a professional sailor his hands were far from horny my lens discloses more than one blood mark especially towards the end of the rope from which i gather that he slipped down with such velocity that he took the skin off his hand this is all very well said i but the thing becomes more unintelligible than ever how about this mysterious ally how came he into the room yes the ally repeated holmes pensively there are features of interest about this ally he lifts the case from the regions of the commonplace i fancy that this ally breaks fresh ground in the annals of crime in this country though parallel cases suggest themselves from india and if my memory serves me from senegambia how came he then i reiterated the door's locked the window is inaccessible was it through the chimney the grate is much too small he answered i had already considered that possibility how then i persisted you will not apply my precept he said shaking his head how often have i said to you that when you have eliminated the impossible whatever remains however improbable must be the truth we know that he did not come through the door the window or the chimney we also know that he could not have been concealed in the room as there is no concealment possible whence then did he come he came through the hole in the roof i cried of course he did he must have done so if you will have the kindness to hold the lamp for me we shall now extend our researches to the room above the secret room in which the treasure was found he mounted the steps and seizing a rafter with each hand he swung himself up into the garret then lying on his face he reached down for the lamp and held it while i followed him the chamber in which we found ourselves was about ten feet one way and six the other the floor was formed by the rafters with thin lath and plaster between so that in walking one had to step from beam to beam the roof ran up to an apex and was evidently the inner shell of the true roof of the house there was no furniture of any sort and the accumulated dust of years lay thick upon the floor here you are you see said sherlock holmes putting his hand against the sloping wall this is a trap-door which leads out onto the roof i can press it back and here is the roof itself sloping at a gentle angle this then is the way by which number one entered let us see if we can find any other traces of his individuality he held down the lamp to the floor and as he did so i saw for the second time that night a startled surprised look come over his face for myself as i followed his gaze my skin was cold under my clothes the floor was covered thickly with the prints of a naked foot clear well-defined perfectly formed 
but scarce half the size of those of an ordinary man holmes i said in a whisper a child has done the horrid thing he had recovered his self-possession in an instant i was staggered for the moment he said but the thing is quite natural my memory failed me or i should have been able to foretell it there is nothing more to be learned here let us go down what is your theory then as to those footmarks i asked eagerly when we had regained the lower room once more my dear watson try a little analysis yourself said he with a touch of impatience you know my methods apply them and it will be instructive to compare results i cannot conceive anything which will cover the facts i answered it will be clear enough soon he said in an off-hand way i think that there is nothing else of importance here but i will look he whipped out his lens and a tape measure and hurried about the room on his knees measuring comparing examining with his long thin nose only a few inches from the planks and his beady eyes gleaming and deep-set like those of a bird so swift silent and furtive were his movements like those of a trained bloodhound picking out a scent that i could not but think what a terrible criminal he would have made had he turned his energy and sagacity against the law instead of exerting them in its defence as he hunted about he kept muttering to himself and finally he broke out into a loud crow of delight we are certainly in luck said he we ought to have very little trouble now number one has had the misfortune to tread in the creosote you can see the outline of the edge of his small foot here at the side of this evil smelling mess the carboy has been cracked you see and the stuff has leaked out what then i asked why we have got him that's all said he i know a dog that would follow that scent to the world's end if a pack can track a trailed herring across a shire how far can a specially trained hound follow so pungent a smell as this it sounds like a sum in the rule of three the answer should give us the but hello here are the accredited representatives of the law heavy steps and the clamour of loud voices were audible from below and the hall door shut with a loud crash before they come said holmes just put your hand here on this poor fellow's arm and here on his leg what do you feel the muscles are as hard as a board i answered quite so they are in a state of extreme contraction far exceeding the usual rigor mortis coupled with this distortion of the face this hippocratic smile or rhesus sardonicus as the old writers called it what conclusion would it suggest to your mind death from some powerful vegetable alkaloid i answered some strychnine like substance which would produce tetanus that was the idea which occurred to me the instant i saw the drawn muscles of the face on getting into the room i at once looked for the means by which the poison had entered the system as you saw i discovered a thorn which had been driven or shot with no great force into the scalp you observe that the part struck was that which would be turned towards the hole in the ceiling if the man were erect in his chair now examine the thorn i took it up gingerly and held it in the light of the lantern it was long sharp and black 
with a glazed look near the point as though some gummy substance had dried upon it the blunt end had been trimmed and rounded off with a knife is that an english thorn he asked no it certainly is not with all these data you should be able to draw some just inference but here are the regulars so the auxiliary forces may beat a retreat as he spoke the steps which had been coming nearer sounded loudly on the passage and a very stout portly man in a gray suit strode heavily into the room he was red-faced burly and plethoric with a pair of very small twinkling eyes which looked keenly out from between swollen and puffy pouches he was closely followed by an inspector in uniform and by the still palpitating thaddeus sholto here's a business he cried in a muffled husky voice here's a pre-business but who are all these why the house seems to be as full as a rabbit warren i think you must recollect me mr athelney jones said holmes quietly why of course i do he wheezed it's mr sherlock holmes the theorist remember you i'll never forget how you lectured us all on causes and inferences and effects in the bishopgate's jewel case it's true you set us on the right track but you'll own now that it was more by good luck than good guidance it was a piece of very simple reasoning oh come now come never be ashamed to own up but what is all this bad business bad business stern facts here no room for theories how lucky that i happened to be out at norwood over another case i was at the station when the message arrived what do you think the man died of oh this is hardly a case for me to theorize over said holmes dryly no no still we can't deny that you hit the nail on the head sometimes dear me door locked i understand jewels worth half a million missing how was the window fastened but there are steps on the sill well well if it was fastened the steps could have nothing to do with the matter that's common sense man might have died in a fit but then the jewels are missing ha i have a theory these flashes come upon me at times just step outside sergeant and you mr sholto your friend can remain what do you think of this holmes sholto was on his own confession with his brother last night the brother died in a fit on which sholto walked off with the treasure how's that on which the dead man very considerately got up and locked the door on the inside hm there's a floor there let us apply common sense to the matter this thaddeus sholto was with his brother there was a quarrel so much we know the brother is dead and the jewels are gone so much also we know no one saw the brother from the time thaddeus left him his bed had not been slept in thaddeus is evidently in a most disturbed state of mind his appearance is well not attractive you see that i'm weaving my web round thaddeus the net begins to close upon him you are not quite in possession of the facts yet said holmes this splinter of wood 
which I have every reason to believe to be poisoned, was in the man's scalp, where you will see the mark. This card, inscribed as you see it, was on the table, and beside it lay this rather curious stone-headed instrument. How does all that fit into your theory? Confirms it in every respect, said the fat detective pompously. Ours is full of Indian curiosities. Thaddeus brought this up, and if this splinter be poisonous, Thaddeus may as well have made murderous use of it as any other man. The card is some hocus-pocus, a blind, as like as not. The only question is, how did he depart? Ah, of course, there is a hole in the roof. With great activity, considering his bulk, he sprang up the steps and squeezed through into the garret and immediately afterwards we heard his exulting voice proclaiming that he had found the trap-door. "'He can find something,' remarked Holmes, shrugging his shoulders. "'He has occasional glimmerings of reason. Il n'y a pas de saut si incommode que ce qui en de l'esprit.' "'You see,' said Otholney Jones, reappearing down the steps again, "'facts are better than mere theories, after all. My view of the case is confirmed.' There is a trapdoor communicating with the roof, and it is partly open. It was I who opened it. Oh, indeed. You did notice it, then. He seemed a little crestfallen at the discovery. Well, whoever noticed it, it shows how our gentleman got away, Inspector. Yes, sir, from the passage. Ask Mr. Shorto to step this way. Mr. Shorto. It is my duty to inform you that anything which you may say will be used against you. I arrest you in the Queen's name as being concerned in the death of your brother. There now, didn't I tell you? cried the poor little man, throwing out his hands and looking from one to the other of us. Don't trouble yourself about it, Mr. Sholto, said Holmes. I think that I can engage to clear you of the charge. Don't promise too much, Mr. Theorist. "'Don't promise too much,' snapped the detective. "'You may find it a harder matter than you think.' "'Not only will I clear him, Mr. Jones, "'but I will make you a free present of the name and description "'of one of the two people who were in this room last night. "'His name, I have every reason to believe, is Jonathan Small. "'He is a poorly educated man, small, active, with his right leg off, and wearing a wooden stump which is worn away upon the inner side. His left boot has a coarse, square-toed sole, with an iron band around the heel. He is a middle-aged man, much sunburned, and has been a convict. These few indications may be of some assistance to you, coupled with the fact that there is a good deal of skin missing from the palm of his hand. The other man— Ah, oh, the other man— asked Athelney Jones in a sneering voice, but impressed none the less, as I could easily see, by the precision of the other's manner. "'Is a rather curious person,' said Sherlock Holmes, turning upon his heel. "'I hope before very long to be able to introduce you to the pair of them. A word with you, Watson.' He led me out to the head of the stair. "'This unexpected occurrence,' he said, "'has caused us rather to lose sight of the original purpose of our journey.' "'I've just been thinking so,' I answered. "'It is not right that Miss Morstan should remain in this stricken house.' "'No. You must escort her home. 
She lives with Mrs. Cecil Forrester in Lower Camberwell, so it is not very far. I will wait for you here if you will drive out again, or perhaps you are too tired. By no means I don't think I could rest until I know more of this fantastic business. I've seen something of the rough side of life, but I give you my word that this quick succession of strange surprises tonight has shaken my nerve completely. I should like, however, to see the matter through with you, now that I have got so far. "'Your presence will be of great service to me,' he answered. "'We shall work the case out independently, and leave this fellow Jones to exult over any mare's nest which he may choose to construct. When you have dropped Miss Morstan, I wish you to go on to number three Pinchin Lane, down near the water's edge at Lambeth. The third house on the right-hand side is a bird-stuffer's. Sherman is the name.' you'll see a weasel holding a young rabbit in the window. Knock old Sherman up, and tell him with my compliments that I want Toby at once. You'll bring Toby back in the cab with you. A dog, I suppose? Yes, a queer mongrel with a most amazing power of scent. I would rather have Toby's help than that of the whole detective force of London. I shall bring him then, said I. It is one now. I ought to be back before three if I can get a fresh horse. "'And I,' said Holmes, "'shall see what I can learn from Mrs. Burnstone, "'and from the Indian servant, "'who Mr. Thaddeus tells me sleeps in the next garret. "'Then I shall study the great Jones's methods "'and listen to his not-too-delicate sarcasms. "'Wir sind gewohnt, dass die Menschen verhunnen, "'was sie nicht verstehen.' "'Goethe is always pithy.' End of chapter 6